0: Hey, gang. Welcome to Geeking Out, the podcast for collectors. I'm your host, Jeff French. I go by ETH Frenchie on Twitter. I'm the creator of the BPS Collective. And every week, we're going to bring you in-depth discussions with the industry's top experts, covering everything from sports cards to comics to TCGs and beyond. So sit back, relax, and join us as we geek out. And let's take your collection to the next level. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Geeking Out. I'm your host, uh, Jeff French. Goodbye, ETH Frenchy on Twitter. And today, I've actually got one of my business partners here with me, somebody who I go back a very long time with. Uh, He's doing a lot of stuff on uh, all of our stuff in the Web3 BPS Collective side of the house, but he doesn't have quite as much visibility, Uh, he's not as forward-facing as I am, but this is a great chance for you all to meet him because we have something very relevant to his experience that's been happening this last, call it, week or so. What we're seeing in the news is we're seeing a lot of stuff with uh, banking and traditional finance and a lot of stuff that may be somewhat irrational, a lot of fears, and I thought David would be a great person to bring in here and just chat about that. So David, why don't you take a moment and just introduce yourself and let everyone know kind of who you are, what your background is. Uh, David is not a uber collector um, like like I am. He's not a guy that, uh, you know, geeks out on the latest sports card, but he's got a lot of insight uh, in running a business. And then again, like I said, a lot of practical experience that is really applicable right now in this current environment. So David, why don't you just kind of give him a little bit of a background on
1: that? Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of you guys don't know this, but Jeff and I actually started our careers together right out of college and we were youngins and we we're both trains accountants. Jeff hides his accountant side better than I do at this point. But uh, <laughs> so I grew up in I grew up in Price Waterhouse Coopers, and um, up, you know, so my career there was focused primarily in consumer finance and banking. Um, I was a partner there and ran the consumer finance group, which basically meant that I ran our consulting and auditing practice um, for the large mortgage banks and parent holding company banks. So clients who were Washington Mutual, Bank of America. Um, Wells Fargo, big big banks like that, Our our practice had was pretty much all the Chase, Citigroup, all those banks for our clients at one point or another. Um, I was I was there through 2008, running a lot of our modeling portfolios, a lot of our pricing uh, practices and risk management practices. So as you can imagine, 2008 was a wild year. I left right before um, everything hit the fan, and ended up at State Street Bank, where I was in the account the uh, CFO's office there, and I ran among other things uh all the financial reporting, uh both regulatory and external. So the SEC reporting as well as our accounting policy groups, um, which basically decided how we treat from really complex things and man- and so I was there during the uh, financial crisis. Uh I was in the in the boardroom when our CEO called us from the White House telling us that uh Bush and Paulson were forcing us to take a two billion dollar equity investment and we had to figure out what the heck were we were gonna do with it and how to account for it even. Um so I had a lot of relevant experience in both um, banking crisis management risk management uh and then having been through the white knuckle of 2008 2009 um i kind of i guess i, I guess i kind of kind of kind of come at this current situation and sort of crisis if you will um with a kind of unique perspective of having been through it on the inside the last time we went through this so that's kind of where i come at it and kind of why i'm very interested in it and very um always pretty intrigued by what's going on in the space and i have kept pretty close tabs on, you know, a lot of my ex- colleagues are still at the large banks and I'm still friend to them. So it's kind of a unique perspective to come at it in time like this, but also I've been away from it for 10 years. So some of my knowledge is a little stale and I'm a lot closer to Web3
0: now and uh, all that, that entails. So one thing that I'd maybe like you to do, David, real quick is just uh, speak it real quick to what State Street is, just the size and scope of that. Cause a lot of people, since it's not a, uh, it's, it's not a retail facing bank, a lot of people may not know, exactly what that means and what the size of that bank and the type of stuff that they handle or what you were involved in there.
1: Yeah, no, that's actually a really important distinction I think we should make, um, especially because, so those of you who know USD know that they just talked about moving a lot of their banking to Bank of New York, uh, so Boney, B-O-N-Y. So Bank of New York and State Street and a smaller company called Northern Trust are the three largest custodial banks in the world. Something like 80%, I didn't do my math, jump double-check that, but of all the, of the stocks Certificates, the bonds—they're held at a custodian, um, and, and and basically they're they're the, they're the world warehouse for large for all, all your vestings. So when you buy shares of IBM stock, no one's going to mail you a share of IBM, but State Street sits in the middle of that and says, "Okay, I'm I'm holding this stock on behalf of Morgan Stanley," who and then Morgan Stanley has a record of who all the owners are. So State Street is a custodian. So that, that the point of those banks is that if sdb for example goes bankrupt and you have a broke your broker is at scb well your stocks aren't sitting at the bank your stocks are sitting with state street um or with bank of new york or with northern trust one of the other custodians uh so that's a very important distinction in that there that set of deposits is completely separate from your normal banking deposits which we'll talk about here in a second which is what what's what everyone's getting worked up about so all your investing portfolios that was off the bank's balance sheets and sitting in effectively a digital warehouse at a bank like State Street. And then State Street and Bank of New York are really the bankers for the investment community. So they lend to mutual funds and act as their bank. They clear FX trades. And so they're basically the banks for the investment community. So it's a very important role and one that will probably be somewhat relevant as we, if we talk about USDC in a little bit and, and the work that they're doing with BlackRock,
0: for example, and the, all of the securities
1: they hold. And why all that stuff is very safe still.
0: Yeah, so we'll definitely, I definitely want to talk a little bit about USDC because that will become relevant in our own ecosystem as we um, move into our BPX world and that sort of thing. But So one thing that I figured I would maybe do is just to real quick give a little bit of a, just a 65 IQ overview of kind of what happened with SBB, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and which kind of started off this whole kind of chain reaction that we're seeing. So essentially what happened, people brought their money in, they put deposits with the bank. The bank then turned around and invested that in long-term treasuries uh, at rates that were in a very low-rate environment. And so those then, they were buying at the current market uh, in a very low-rate environment. So that treasury is going to continue to give an investor that yield until it matures. So what happens is when interest rates go up, an investor that comes along during the higher rate environment can buy the treasure, a new treasury at a much higher rate and get a yield at that current rate. So if you were going to then buy that older treasury that someone initiated in a uh, lower rate environment, you're going to discount the amount that you will pay for it. So it could be a billion dollar treasury, but for you to get the same yield buying that versus what you could if you put a billion in at today's rate, maybe you're only going to pay $900 million for it. And so what that does is that takes a big haircut on the bank's balance sheet. Because remember, the bank used the deposits of its customers to buy those assets. So then what happens if a, if a bank run happens and everybody comes and says, give me my money, the bank can't do it because they literally don't have the dollar bills sitting in a safe. They have them in these ultra safe assets, but they have long maturities on them. So then if they have forced to sell them, They're not getting one-for-one in dollars back. That leads to insolvency. And then what happened is the Fed stepped in, or the FDIC, through its various um, insurance programs and all the acronyms that I can't quote off the top of my head, they stepped in and took the bank over and said, look, we're going to honor, under the FDIC charter, we're going to honor everybody's deposits up to $250,000. That's something that in America we're protected when you put less than $250,000 in a retail bank you're insured up to that limit. And initially, there was a lot of concern about all of the other companies that had cash sitting there above the FDIC limits. And then the government later came and said, okay, we're going to backstop that too. We're going to protect all consumer deposits. However, we're not going to protect the shareholders in the bank. And so what happened is if you had a share of Silicon Valley Bank the day before this happened, the day after it happened, that share that that publicly traded share in the bank itself was now worth zero, and that's mm-hmm. what led to the massive blood that we saw after, even after the government said we're going to come up with ways to make depositors whole. The reason you still saw so much blood in the uh, in the in the banking stocks was because people were afraid to hold these smaller regional banks, not knowing who else might be in that same situation. And if the Fed steps in, if the FDIC steps in, then that stock would go to zero. David, did I misstate anything there in that really simplified explanation that you would want to clarify? Yeah, I think that's,
1: I think that's, I think there's a valid way to, a, a, a very good explanation of it all. I mean, I think the one thing that I would just stress, again, that's very different about this crisis from, for those of you who are around in 2008, or if you've heard talk about the SNL crisis in the, in the 90s, is that. For the most part, we think that the assets that these banks invested in are money good, right? So if if you keep your deposit in the bank, those those assets will pay off over a staggered, you know, Silicon Valley's maturities were anywhere from one month all the way up to ten years. So if if those deposits had not left, they probably would have been paid off in full and it would have been totally fine. But the issue clearly was that people didn't trust that. Uh, and when the deposits started getting yanked, then for absolutely the bank itself couldn't pay those off and it would, and effectively went bankrupt because the, if selling those securities today to just point would have created more of a loss than they than they could have cashed out for.
0: So what I was thinking that we could do here, because obviously, you know, geeking out, it's we've left the, the pod intentionally wide. And this is certainly something that's very relevant today. And it's relevant to everyone that's in our ecosystem and the people that have maybe picked up the pod and started listening to it, even if, you know, but I, I do want to bring some of this back to the collector's mindset at the end and how it matters. But I think before we can get there, now I do think we need to spend a little bit of time, maybe above the shoulders, in some of the you know a little bit headier stuff. And what I was going to ask you to do is help unpack the current situation, help unpack what's going on, and I and we normally don't put any kind of. The, the typical disclosure that says none of this is financial advice. We're not financial advisors. Well, none of this is financial advice and we're not financial advisors. We're here to talk about collecting. I just thought that I had somebody that had some relevant experience about the banking world and it was really relevant to what we're seeing right now. And I wanted to bring that content to you all, but this podcast is for entertainment purposes and I don't have a lawyer with me to know every other disclaimer, but just keep all that in mind. So David, can you maybe just riff and just kind of unpack what you see right now what's going on and um i'll just i'll just let you run with it
1: yeah so i, I think what again what's what sparked this over the weekend for you and i was just all of the twitterverse exploding about the, the bitcoin's going to a million the economy's ruined every armchair economist out there who has a the axe to grind picks their favorite thing and you know it just it, if you if you just took that in the vacuum i guess i feel like we would all sit back and say well F, we're going to be buying groceries in six months with baseball cards and Bitcoin, like we're all screwed. And zombies are going to be chasing us and the world's going to end. And I feel like maybe that is maybe maybe that is going to happen. If it does, it's going to really suck I don't have any baseball cards. Jeff's going to have to feed me. But uh, in the interim, I feel like there are things that are countervailing points to a lot of the doom and gloom naysayers where the sky has fallen. Um, and I think that's kind of where I went. And I think first and foremost, I think it's really important to understand like that, that, while this is a very dicey situation, and and, and I'm and I am nervous. It, I, it is a scary situation to see how this is all going to play out, and you know how much liquidity will be in the economy. Will the Fed have to print more money? But the reality is, there's a very high chance that this won't create a huge liquidity introduction into the economy, which causes inflation. We all know that's the big issue. If you if you think back to TARP in 2008, um, that was a um, several trillion dollar support program that the, that the fed put out there and eventually the the, the fed and
0: thus remind, the US remind, remind people remind people what tarp was for
1: yeah so tarp TARP was the bill it was a troubled asset uh, repurchase program that congress passed in 2008 to support the banking infrastructure so basically it gave the federal reserve bank the authority to backstop banks and other and other critically important institutions if you may recall they bailed out gm they bailed out um um aig the big insurance company all the banks got this money um and in the end they they came with requirements to pay it back just like the current program does and the, the reality of that program was people were all saying the same thing how much injection how much cash that put in the economy but ultimately all that money got paid back as most likely this will get paid back and the taxpayer made money on it so this is very different than the stimulus programs of the past two of the last two to three years that put so much cash in them that the tax cuts that sort have of put so much cash in the economy. This is a very contained thing. And it's something that I think the Federal Reserve and Treasury know how to manage. People at these banks just went through this whole process like just a decade ago with like, the liquidity issues at the banks then. And I think we have the tools to handle this. So in my mind, if, if you ask me whether this is a massive doom and gloom, there's going to be massive bank failures everywhere, and we're all going to be like struggling to figure out how to pay, pay for things. I think that's a
0: way overblown scenario. Okay, um, let's try. Let's try to keep this. Uh, let's let's try to take it in, in pieces. And I'm going to try to keep bringing you back to the 65 IQ so that everyone can understand it, like people like me that aren't super smart and didn't didn't get a Columbia MBA. Uh, so what? Um, what when you say that this will not lead? Uh, you're 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 saying that it, it could go through a situation, and not lead to a lot of inflation. Speak to exactly kind of what that means, what are the vehicles right now that we know about that have been provided? And then what will, one of the things that you struck me this week is when you said how the the bank executives would avoid using it so aggressively, and then how it it still just nets back to the same level of deposit. So like, let's just stop right there and stay focusing on that for a second and just try to go with that as simple as you can say it, explain to people what that means. Yes, so that's two separate points. The first question okay. is, oh, sorry, again, I said I was 65 IQ. Yeah, no, no, let's take Indian, a break. <laughs> let's
1: do the latter one first, right? So right. The, the, the run on the bank, you're taking deposits out. Like the, the the fundamental question is, if I go to my bank and we all go run to our bank and say, give me my money back, what do we do today that we would do, that do differently from 1929? Today, we just say, "Okay, give me money back. Oh, we please wire it to bank A from bank B. So okay, the banking system still has the exact same amount of cash in it. And then the new bank has to do something with that cash too.
0: And what are they? Right. Doing? And I think that that right there is a big point that a lot of people are missing. This money's not going into mason jars, right? Right. Right. Which which is what happened in nineteen twenty nine, which right. almost
1: collapsed the entire economy, right? Uh, and it's also not money bad like it was in two thousand eight, where these are loans that can't be repaid. And so the, the losses are actual realized losses. Here, we're simply saying, take my money from Silver, Silvergate Bank or Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic and please send it to Bank of America, Citizens Bank, and First Citizens, right? So now these three banks have that same cash. So $40 billion left Sil- Silicon Valley Bank and $40 billion went to other banks. So the banking system as a whole, while it's clearly there are going to be like episodic failures, somebody along that line is going to screw up and mess up and a- another, ge- another bank might go bankrupt but the banking system has it has the money the money still and it's really important if you if you guys follow the first republic bank scenario that was going on last week that that was another big bank on the west coast like silvergate bank excuse me like silicon valley bank had very similar deposit base and they were there was concerns there about bank outflows so people were yanking money out of first republic now people are thinking oh no it's the same thing so rather than Bailing them out, the other banks basically deposited money back into First Republic. So they took the money, all the money that was being flooding out of First Republic, and then basically sent that money back to First Republic. So, so in other words, the money is just sloshing around right now, which is why I think the banking system as a whole is totally fine. It's going to be rocky and there are going to be failures, but as an entity, as a whole, we're going to be fine when it comes to the banks. So, now and I, we talk, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yes, you're right. You know the, point, right? Yeah. I said there was a second part of your question, and I was trying to think what that, um, I forgot what it was now.
0: We're we'll getting old yet. Yeah, I honestly don't remember what <laughs> I this said. This, this stuff is complex, man. It's hard to, I'm sure we'll go back and listen to it and be like, oh, we didn't answer that part of the question. But um, I was going to go in a little bit different direction. Oh, um, you,
1: know, you know what? It's why, why the banks won't hit this program
0: as hard as I think. That's right. The, Why those executives will try to avoid going. Yeah.
1: To and that. I think the issue, so one of the issues, again, that this whole like talk that the Fed just printed $2 trillion in, in, in money. My, my theory is that I may be proven wrong. You know, like that this could very well be hit tapped way more than I think it's going to be. But la- as of last week, when they've issued their balance sheet, only 10 billion of it had been tapped, uh, which is small numbers. And the issue is that if a bank says, Hey, fed, I need you to, yeah, i need you to take i need you to give me this loan it's a it's an admission that they've got a problem um and a that's gonna be really bad from from their own perspective the reputation the bank's risk but then it also is going to invite the fed in to say all right all the regulators to say okay you need this money so let me come in you need stock dividends you need to stop paying dividends you need to stop doing all buybacks uh you need to cut your all your pay your bonuses you need to you can't do any MA, you lending me program you need to cut back and no bank wants that, that that's just right. not killer so i think in the end that i, I would be I'd be surprised if this thing gets fully drawn down uh, or even or even materially drawn down. Now, I could be wrong, but we'll, we'll see how it plays out. That's why I don't think this is a huge money printing, money printer go burr type
0: thing that everyone's talking about. Right. So with inflation, the key to inflation in any economy, whether it's, I mean, it, it could be the, uh, the Madden video game economy. It, inflation really only matters when the currency goes to those that will spend it, not to those that will save it. Right. So like at, that's the thing that i've been looking at this from an investment standpoint for um for what i'm making moves on my own and then also just thinking about my collectibles trying to understand inflation obviously is a big driver in the collectibles market in general but i'm i, I mean i don't see a ton of ways here where the money printer is going burr my i will admit my initial reaction was that it is right? right and but as i've dug in deeper and a lot of that's been in counsel with you and hearing some of this now I am struggling to find where dollars that will be spent are getting to the street. Is that right? Is that That, that, where you are as well? That's exactly exactly the point to to
1: bear in mind, right? Like the the inflation problem has been because you and I have had a lot more cash in the bank than we normally do. Like you and I being the U.S., the U.S., all of us, right? Um, That's what's causing inflation because there's more of that in our pockets. In this case, the banks aren't going to go buy a new building with this money these new deposits they're they're basically gonna sit there and hold them waiting for us to flush it through right so that that's absolutely the number one criteria here this isn't this isn't productive cash that's going to go sit in your pocket and you're going to
0: go buy a boat with it right that was the thing that i missed earlier i just heard the number and i said wow that's a big number and then i'm like anytime the government is stepping in that's inflation 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 and i'm kind of wired to, to when i hear that my brain goes to certain places and um And then, then again, like you said, you unpack it and it's like, well, yeah, but it's not spending inflation. And therefore it's like, I, I struggle to see how when we go back to COVID when our collectibles all went and mooned up because of the amount of money printing that was happening. I struggle to see how money is going to make it out of this system to buy Michael Jordan cards.
1: Right. I think that's, I think that's, so if we move us straight into what we do, right. You know, collecting or, you know, Physical and digital collectibles—the stuff that we invest in. i obviously I invest in digital so quite. You know, I don't really have a physical collection, but I, I clearly have my squiggles and I have my birds and other stuff. And you know, so the question—and I have I have Bitcoin, I have ETH, I have all those other assets. So the question is: All right, do I? Should I panic and pull out all of my cash and like put it in Bitcoin and put it in put it in Kumi Squiggles or put it in uh, a vault token or a uh, pirate? Um, the, uh, the answer I think the answer is if you weren't going to do that last week, you shouldn't do it today. I mean, I think you should be vigilant. I think you should pay attention to things. This is just my personal take on it. This is what I'm doing. Um, but I'm not going to change the cash reserves that I keep in banks. Um, I have a personal threshold I like to keep in a bank because I know one way of how much my family spends and how I spend. And, I, and I'm not changing any of that. Now, I, for my company, our company, we talked about this. you know I, I clearly want to have a backup bank. Um, Because in those scenarios where we may have cash and funds above deposit limits, even though I think that they're fine, the disruption to a business on a day-to-day basis—if I—if I have to move money in the last minute, I can't access it—is really as critical. So, absolutely, I would keep things, and you know, not knowing which bank may have hit a problem, I would keep things in multiple counterparties. But, but I'm not worried on that my cash is not safe in the system, and I'm definitely not changing how much money I spend on physical things that might hold value outside of the banking system. Um, I think personally, that's the thing that I would tell my friends is that with all this going on, don't change your investment approach in terms of the riskier assets like cards and collectibles and crypto and all that
0: stuff. So let's take a step back for a moment and let's go back and let's talk about USDC. And uh, USDC is obviously a critical piece of the entire DeFi system. You have to have that token that is to the U.S. dollar, it's the it's the world's currency for better or for worse, and obviously there's a lot of what's that? Yeah, no, 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 no I, I apologize. Yeah, world's currency, right? USD, yes, yeah. So the um, but so having having that and having that be a stable, reliable uh, coin that we can rely on in crypto, and then also within our own ecosystem. I mean, there's a lot of implications around USDC and its its viability and all that sort of thing. And I was pretty vocal on Twitter. As soon as the smoke around USDC started, um, you know the, that I felt that that was really, really overblown, and maybe you can talk a little bit more to some of the the ideas of how that money is uh, held, how it's disclosed, how uh, end user could go see it, and just just maybe kind of kind of what your take is on USDC as a whole. And 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 when we we turn on the Twitter timeline and we see people that that aren't. They haven't dug into this. They don't understand it. And they're freaking out. And people were dumping their USDC as low as 87 cents on the dollar, which if they were dumping it to ETH, that ended up playing out all right, because ETH ripped up. (laughs) But um, at the time, it was irrational. Um, And and maybe speak to kind of why why that was.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, shout out to the bankless guys here. Um, If you want a masterclass on this, there's a 30-minute episode they did last Monday um, with Jeremy Allaire, who's the CEO of Circle. Um, which is a phenomenal explanation of how that worked and how Circle handled that over the weekend. So if you wanted to get in a little deeper, I definitely would recommend that. Um, a lot of what I'm going to spit out right now is kind of like stuff I've learned from that and over the weekend digging into it a little deeper. Um, Circle, as you know, is the parent company that issues USDC. So USDC is backed fully by cash reserves and cash, and they have it like they have it basically staggered in two different buckets. There's they had Generally, I, I guess as a couple of weeks ago, around $9 billion in cash, like so straight cash, um, sitting at five or six different banks. And then they had the rest of the portfolio, like I, I don't, I forget the market cap now, but the, in the ten, uh, tens of billions, um, sitting at Bank of New York um, in an SEC registered fund managed by BlackRock. BlackRock's the highest, the largest a- asset manager in the world. Um, and they basically take all those treasury securities and put them in a trust. Um, managed by BlackRock, again, held at a custodian at Bank of New York. So that's back to my point earlier where like banks aren't holding Circles assets, the majority of them. They're at a custodian and they're in a separately managed vehicle. It's SEC registered. You can pull up, I think it's USDX. You can go on any screen and see at any given moment how much securities are in that pool, like buy QSIP, so you know the money's there. Um, And then the rest of that money sits in a bank. And that... Is then subject to the risk that that bank goes bad, which is what happened when they had money at Silvergate, they had money at Silicon Valley Bank, and they had money at Signature Bank, because those are all big crypto rail banks. Um, and what happens is, and why, while I still have my tinfoil hat on on this one with Signature Bank, um, is that both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature they basically have these sub ledgers, like basically a record keeping system where. If you come on on the weekend or after hours, you say, hey, I want to cash in my USDC for dollars, the bank sits there and says, okay, I know this Silicon Valley, I, I, excuse me, I know that Circle has $3 billion on deposit with me, so I'll make that ledger and I'll cash that out. I'll take on that liability and then I'll take Silicon Valley, I'll, I'll take Circle's money on Monday and send it to whoever, whoever held it before. So basically over the weekend, they, those banks had the cash and then they're saying yep it's money good they're taking on that liability and the promise to pay on monday when the banks open up next day to whoever wants the u.s dollars in cash so over that over that weekend what the reason why coinbase for example froze most likely I, i'm not privy to what all that was behind the scenes there The reason coinbase stopped redemptions is that well they they have a huge balance and they need to make sure that they need to make sure that that sub ledger that says okay david owes jeff money and That signature bank and and bank in new york have that cash that they they'll be able to access it on monday so that was that that was the reason for that pause but in the end that cash is still there and the the amount of cash that was theoretically at risk meaning the bound amount of the peg was less than any one bank held at at all it it, it, among the very various banks they were
0: using so Again, in my mind, that's, yeah. that's that's where a lot of people were arguing that buying the USDC on DEXs and getting it at as low as I think it went down to 86, 87 cents on the dollar and then turning right around and rolling it back out at par to, to Robinhood or whoever. Next thing you know, there are people that make made millions of dollars and now Robinhood is relying on that redemption process from Circle to make them whole. As long as it is, Robinhood wins too because they have fees on the inbound side. And the only person that you loses, the person that paid that yield was the guy that sold his USDC at 86 cents on the dollar. That's where 100% of the yield came from, both for Robinhood and for the person that was farming it. Right? Yeah. And I have no
1: idea why, I don't know anything behind that scene with Coinbase, but they're obviously, they're so much larger than some of these other holders that their concern probably, do, do we know that do we know that we can
0: access this in these banks on Mondays? But yeah, the- Robinhood shut theirs down. Robinhood shut theirs down too. It was open for, yeah. once people figured that out, I think it ran for 10 or 12 hours and then it shut down too. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean I, I think that's a bit of it now, But I think again, I think USCC is incredibly safe, and um, right. I definitely, And even over the weekend, Circle had said that they would that that they would cover any shortfall with their balance sheet, right? So yeah, they, right. I mean, obviously, yeah. that coin is critically important to them, and that peg is critically important to them. And and I mean, I I would have bet the farm on that Saturday that USDC would be repegged come Monday. I mean, I was incredibly confident and in you just look at my Twitter feed and you can see it. And I know you were too behind the scenes. Yeah, I know you're not on Twitter like I am for that kind of stuff, but I was, I was saying it and we were talking about it. So, right. Um, yeah, and, and, and if you think, if you just think about how much money Circle is printing
1: right now, like they have not in a bad way, but a good way. Like they have, I, I, I forget, several hundred billion. I've heard the number now off the top of my head, but that, that hundred billion hundreds of billions of dollars earning four and a half percent a year interest. That's $450 million a year. Like that's a lot of money um that they're just printing. So their balance their their own personal balance sheet is probably super healthy. But that's another thing to think about here because USDC obviously doesn't pay interest, but they're they're they are earning yield on that one, two and three month deposit base they have, which is at four percent right now.
0: Yeah. Right now it looks like according to Coinbase, current market cap on USDC is thirty six billion.
1: Yeah, so they have thirty six billion dollars earning four and a half percent interest rates right now in, in and okay. in one to three month deposits.
0: Yeah, and I'd be curious. I, I haven't seen a chart to see how much of that has rotated. Obviously, a lot of that had to rotate into some of this pump on ETH and Bitcoin scene and other cryptos, broader cryptos as a whole. I would think, but um, so again, USDC super. It, it's it's the gold standard. It's the best that we're going to get. It's the reason that we've chosen it for the the pair that we'll set up on BPX for our reward. Uh, token, our frequent flyer miles in our ecosystem. And, you know, when you think about our collectibles and that sort of thing, um, they're not necessarily um, denoted in ETH values. And while our community has done a lot of trading and conversion over, um, you know, this is one of the things that, that I'm optimistic and, and can't wait to see is kind of a little bit more of a, of a focus back to USDC and more of a focus to kind of isolating what it is that we're doing. Inside our ecosystem versus all of the volatility, that comes with with crypto as a whole. But overall, yeah, I think you're echoing the same.
1: Yeah, I it'll it'll benefit us long run because I think where where we need a ton of clarity and regulatory oversight is like things like USDC. And I think that'll they'll continue to put emphasis on people who are providing like stable back backbones like that on the, their compliance and their strength. So I think it's good.
0: Yeah. So anyway, so that now. Really appreciate all of that. I, I hope I hope we kinda kept that at a solid level. And um and, and really I think the thing is is that I would not and I am not running out right now thinking with a massive inflationary mindset. Like I'm I'm watching auctions and everything like I normally do in physical. I'm I'm behaving in um in digital like I normally would, absent of really the the huge narrative on this. I mean I I like that the narrative has been, oh, we might be getting inflation. Let's go buy crypto. That narrative I love, but I don't, nobody's wishing for hyperinflation. At least you shouldn't be unless you're out of your absolute mind. Um, But that narrative is good, and I'm happy to see some of that. But I do think, like you said, once this kind of abates, um, you know, it feels like, you look back on this and yes, and people are going to get some stock wiped and there'll be some pension funds. There'll be some individual holders. There'll be VCs. There'll be people that held that stock and they're going to feel some pain. Right. I mean, if yeah. you had, if you had Silicon Valley bank stock, you, you're really feeling that pain, but Absolutely. end users, retail users, that sort of thing. Um, it sounds, you know, I, I think, again, we're not thinking about it from a massive inflationary thing. When I look at the world of digital collecting right now, one of the things that has my eye more than anything else is some of the farming that we're seeing and what that's doing to digital collectibles. Um, Meaning, you know, Blur and the Blur farming turning collections that I personally love, the CryptoPunk floor right now is being traded like a damn altcoin and I hate to see it. And, um, you know, it was, that floor was rock steady for a very long time at like 62 ETH all through the bear market. And then all of a sudden they start Uh, Farming the the rap crypto punks ETH is pumping everything else is kind of going down, and punks are ripping up to the mid seventies simply on the narrative of blur farming. And then the next thing you know, like your your aesthetic your mid rares and your aesthetic floors are just not getting premiums and that kind of stuff. I hate to see, but that's 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 an isolated thing, not really driven by any of this banking stuff. So again, when I bring it back to collecting and digital, right now I see the single biggest driver that's happening right now in digital at the top end of the market. Is really blur farming, and then we have this arbitrum token coming. That's going to have a lot of liquidity. Do you see a ton of that moving back over to main chain ETH? I mean, that that if if that if, if they inject a couple billion of spending power in people's hands, or or do you state think it stays isolated on that other side of the bridge? How do, what do you what do you see there? I think there's a I think arbitrum has
1: a really cool community right now. I'm obviously, I mean, not obviously, but arbitrum's main claim to fame right now is the DeFi volume they do. So there's a lot of that there. Um, but then I think from a, um, use case standpoint, there are some pretty cool ecosystems out there and it's the magic uh, ecosystem there. I mean, there are some, there's some neat things happening there. And i feel like the people who are in that ecosystem, people who are transacting heavily in it, who are going to get their arm token are there because they're true believers in that ecosystem. And I think they're going to want to use this to, to stay in there. They're not going to want to migrate back to a layer one. And I think they're going to stay there. Um, so I think I, I will see, but, um, I don't know that there's going to be a lot of, um,
0: I, I mean, not giving more. You don't. You don't think maybe having that extra spending power that the that the ARB token will give them in Arbitrum wouldn't make them say, "Okay, now let me pull back some of my ETH to use more on the in 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 a in a in a different environment." Or you just think it'll all stay? I mean, locked. we didn't
1: see that. I, mean, I don't. I, I don't think we saw that big outflow with optimism when they brought the OP token. It was the same thing. It's it, it's at pretty all time highs right now, and it, I don't think you saw it there. Um, I mean, Matic, I mean, obviously that's, it's kind of not the same, I guess, but optimism is the closest to I, Who knows, right? I don't know. It really probably depends on what the, you know, what else happens in the ETH ecosystem right now, right? If if there is a big rotation out of institutional money into Bitcoin and ETH because of this, which, you know, which could I could see happening, right? There, I could see enough of material volume of like, individuals and large investors moving back out of cash into Bitcoin and ETH. If that's the case, then you start to see ETH rip maybe that would do that right so you you leave the arm token and come back try to come back to main chain for that and that could cause some volume
0: um i love it it's, it's hard to predict um okay. so I just, I, because i again i was just looking at what are the different drivers because if, if i if i don't if i'm if i'm at a point where in my thesis i'm not really looking at this banking issue as a really big driver either way um you know The guy that has a nice Michael Jordan collection that got wrecked on Silicon Valley stock, maybe he wants to sell and that's some sell pressure. So that's, I see a few net negatives on the fringe. Don't really see a ton of net positives. So just looking for where the other net positives would be, um, just really kind of to me feels a little bit more steady as she goes on the physical side. And then maybe a few things between blur, between that and Arbitrum. Maybe there are some inflationary drivers on the digital side, but we just kind of have to wait and see how that second airdrop pairs out, wait and see how all this farming works out. Uh, the interesting thing with all that blur farming is that it's going to be so heavily concentrated now into just a very small handful of whales in this season too because they've allowed they set it up with a mechanic that people like Punk's OTC, Franklin's Board, you know, they're just mining, they're farming such a huge percentage of the token, Moxie Big right. Brother. but it, It's going to be in so few wallets um that a lot of the token it's it will then come down to how those wallets behave and um so it's going to be uh it's gonna be interesting um it's something that i'm not necessarily i'm not playing on at a level to where i can be where i can have any kind of sway and i don't really want to be at the mercy of other people like that so i'm probably not going to be people i don't know and that sort of thing but anyway so those are the big drivers you don't want to be the last man standing there right yep i don't think so all right. Well, I uh, we're right up against forty minutes, and I think this has hopefully been helpful. It gets a little bit off of our normal, uh, the normal way we geek out, but we it's certainly pretty geeky to get into banking and traditional finance. So glad you all had a chance to meet David. Uh, he is in Discord. Feel free to ping him. His name in there is David D A V E E D, and I think the two E's are the E symbol, kind of like mine yep. and Frenchie. Feel free to ping him there. And uh, David, I know you're not super active on Twitter, but what is your Twitter? D guys zero zero one at D guys zero zero one. But anyway, so that's, uh, that's David really appreciate. He's like I said, just super smart guy, someone who a lot of times when you hear me say, I stand on the shoulders of giants and look tall. A lot of the insight I get on the uh, banking side, a lot of the insight in building out tokenomics and understanding inflation and all that sort of stuff. uh, David has been absolutely critical in a lot of that across our ecosystem. So I'm glad you all got to hear some insight from him today and uh, just kind of begin to understand our team a little better and the people that are back here uh, making, making it tick. But I don't, I I don't think there are many teams in web three that have a resource like David that they can uh, turn around and reach to. So thanks for coming on the pod today, David and uh, everyone until next time, keep geeking out. I'll see you guys in discord. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to another episode of geeking out the podcast for collectors. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button to stay up to date on all things related to collecting. Remember new episodes are coming every week. So until next time, keep geeking out.